Good morning. This is Anjay Stewart, the High Seas 4 Chief Engineering Officer. The day is September 22nd, and this is Mission Day 25. This is Anjay. Of all the people in the Dome, Anjay is probably the most excited to be here. He's wanted to be an astronaut ever since he was a little kid. This was the 80s, and if you remember, 80s was sort of the uh, golden age of the space shuttle. You know, they were launching shuttles every few months. You just turn it on TV, and you'd see a shuttle launch. Even with all those shuttle launches, all that excitement about space travel, Anjay never really thought about going into space himself. And then he saw something that changed all that. It was a movie called Space Camp. By the time you leave Space Camp, you will know the function of every circuit on the shuttle. You may never get the chance to fly in it, but it won't be because you don't know how. Space Camp, 1986. A movie that features more training montages than you could ever hope for, more 80s perms than you could ever want, an adorable talking robot, a young Joaquin Phoenix, and a very 80s soundtrack. It's, you know, very campy, you know. It's not like going to number as one of the great movies of our time or anything like that, but what it's about is it's about a bunch of kids at space camp who, through a series of events, get shot into space in a real space shuttle. I feel like I'm flying. And I remember the shuttle, Atlantis. Just the name of it sounded very, you know, just had this very mystic quality to it. Atlantis. It's cheesy, but honestly, I teared up a little watching this. And the movie made a big impression on little Anjay, because the people flying through space were regular kids. Kids just like him, with backpacks and homework and braces. And they were having the adventure of a lifetime. But that is the Hollywood version of space travel. The real thing sounds a little different. The real thing sounds like this. You're listening to Ronald Evans on Apollo 17. He's giving Mission Control a list of every single thing he's eaten. There's a recording like this one for every day of the mission. Peanut butter, jelly, bread, chocolate bar, orange uh, drink, Frank, one frankfurter, a third of a fruitcake. Let me know if I'm too fast for you. If you go through the NASA archives, which I have now done, you'll find hours and hours and hours of this stuff. Zero, one, three, four, zero, zero, niner. This one is astronaut Ed White in 1965. He's giving mission control the coordinates of a spaceship. Okay, Ed, let me correct you on that. Stand by. It's zero, one, three, four, zero, zero, nine. That's what I said, flight. Uh, negative. I believe you read uh, 01340009. Okay. okay, you read ascension. 01340009. I read it right the first time. Okay. You read the right numbers. You didn't read it with the right uh, beat. 
the right what? You didn't read it with the right beat. Back in the 80s, little Anjay dreamed of being an astronaut. And he's followed that dream all these years. He grew up and got his engineering degree, his pilot's license, and to improve his chances of becoming a real astronaut, he applied to be a fake astronaut in high seas. But high seas is designed to be as close to the real thing as possible. Which means it doesn't have much of this. What it has is plenty of this. Apricot. That's dried apricot. Uh, half a beef steak, butterscotch pudding, orange drink, and tea. This is the habitat. Hey, Lynn, this is Carmel. Um, I'm just getting started on recharging batteries for the day. As the weeks go by and recordings from the habitat start to pile up, I get a better idea of what daily life is really like in there. And yeah, there are salsa lessons and ukulele duets, but more and more what I hear is stuff like this. Carmel waking up and recharging every battery in the hab, knowing she's going to have to do the same thing again tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that. It's the Yule log of audio recordings. I listen to the crew rehydrate their dried chicken and run in place and ride the exercise bike and rehydrate more dried chicken and run in place and ride the exercise bike. I listen to conversations like this one. Sunk or synced? I don't know. Sank. This is Tristan and Carmel trying to agree on the past tense of the word sunk. Sink. Sink. Sunk. Having them having it. I don't I think, think there's a word sunk. for it. You realize that the audio we're making right now is like lethally boring. I'm sure it is, but this is the majority of our days like talking about stupid boring things. It's the kind of conversation you have when you've got nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. And it's not just that their days are becoming boring and monotonous. You know what we should do while we're do our surveys? We've got our surveys to do. It's also that they spend huge chunks of those days monotonously reporting every detail of their monotonous monotony. Surveys, surveys. By filling out surveys. There are surveys for everything. We have daily surveys, we have weekly surveys. Morning survey, sleep log. Stress survey, humor survey every month. End of day, badge survey, afternoon sample. Plant interaction survey every month. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The crew is doing up to 11 surveys a day. They spend hours answering questions. Questions about the smallest, most insignificant seeming details of their lives. Questions like, when did you go to bed and when did you fall asleep? Uh, did you wake up at night and when did you wake up? And when did you get up? Highlights of the day, low points of the day. How we're feeling about our last interaction, who we last interacted with, 
Uh, why was interaction effective? What we feel like we accomplished today, positive, negative feelings about that. What we did during our free time. How everybody did in performing their duties. Duties. <laughs> is anyone sick or wounded? Um, is anyone depressed, overeating, or exhausted? What you did today to relieve your stress, various activities that you did, if they relieved your stress, if so, how much? Basically just a really boring diary. Each one of these surveys is designed to reveal something about how the crew is coping in there, and by extension, how people might cope on Mars. And it's not just the surveys. The crew wears sensors to track their body temperature and heart rate. They do exercises to test their cognition and cooperation. They give urine samples and hair samples and saliva samples. In other words, the same thing is happening to the crew that happens to every piece of equipment that has to do the same thing over and over for a long time. They're being product tested. So let's talk about mattresses for a second. When a company makes a new mattress before they'll sell it to you, they test the ever-loving shit out of it. They take a sample mattress and they put it through mattress hell. It gets bent and poked and prodded from every angle. It gets clobbered with a 500-pound wooden roller over and over again for 62 hours. It gets burnt with cigarettes to make sure it won't go up in flames. A fake plastic buttocks is pressed into it 20,000 times. I'm not making any of this up. And that's for a mattress. And a mission to Mars is a little more complicated than a mattress. In this experiment, the people inside the dome are the mattresses. And the endless monotony of life in there is the fake plastic buttocks pressing down on them. Day. Hello, everybody. This is Anjay Stewart, the chief engineering officer of High Seas 4. After day. Today is October 13th, mission day 46 here on Simulated Mars. After day. This is mission day 67. Today is mission day number 81. Mission day 93 here on Simulated Mars. After day. Mission day 95. Mission day 130. Mission day 151. Mission day. Mission day. Mission day. Mission day. Let's see, where is it? And by mission day 100 and something, the human mattresses are starting to sound a lot less springy. Every single day is virtually identical. I mean, um, we have no real change in schedule. There's no, like, seasons, really. It's the same week, every week, again and again and again. There's one day, though, one day when something happens to break the monotony but not in a good way. I, this day, it was November the 13th, I came downstairs and I saw my crewmates whispering. And when they saw me, they said, Cyprien, you might be interested in the news. This is Cyprien, the French member of the High Seas crew. And the day he's talking about started like any other day. Someone on the crew got up, turned on a computer, and opened Wikipedia. And on the right-hand side of the page, there was a sentence about, quote, a shooting that injured several people and a bomb attack at a bar near the Stade de France in Paris. Paris. The place Cyprian was born and where he's lived pretty much his whole life. It's where my friends are. It's where my family is. It's the places I grew up in. So the crew is supposed to be on Mars. And Mars is really far from Earth. 
It's so far that any information you send from one planet to the other will take about 20 minutes to get there, which means real-time communication is impossible. Phone calls are impossible. Searching the internet is impossible. And the Habitat works like that too. They do have access to a few websites like Wikipedia, and they have email, but with a Mars-like 20-minute delay. Imagine that right now, the person next to you turns and says, hey, did you see this? Something bad is happening and... And then out of her mouth comes the name of your hometown. You want to know everything right away. You want to Google to see what the hell's happening. You want to check Twitter, Facebook, the New York Times. You want to turn on the TV, the radio. You want to call your mom and see if everything's okay, if she's okay. But you can't. You can't do any of that. Your only connection to the outside world is your email, which is on a 20-minute delay. So I opened my mailbox, which is the only way for me to get news. And I found this email, which was from um, the French person in, um, in mission support. And it was called Attentat à Paris. And it said, Cyprien, il vient d'y avoir trois attentats à Paris en simultané. Even if you don't speak much French, you might understand a few of the words in here. Le président a été évacué. The president has been evacuated. Il y a au moins 39 morts. There are at least 39 dead. C'est des attaques terroristes. These are terrorist attacks. In the rest of the world, on this Friday in November, this is what we were hearing. This is an ABC News special report. We are just getting word now what appears to be a shooting, maybe multiple shootings. Gunmen with Kalashnikovs reported. Police stormed a concert hall where gunmen had taken hostage. In the city of, of Paris. 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 Paris is under siege tonight. But in the habitat, it was very quiet. For a while, all the crew could do was keep refreshing that one Wikipedia page over and over. Cyprian emailed mission support, asking for updates. And as emails came, with always a 20-minute delay, uh, more and more people were dead or um, held hostage. Held hostage. By the afternoon, 130 people were confirmed dead. But which 130 people? Could Cyprian's mother or brother or friend be in one of those hospital beds? He didn't know yet. And since I don't have a phone here, I had to wait for hours before having news from my friends and, um, and my family. At some point, he, he just went to the bike. Here's Christiana. And he didn't say anything. And he biked for really long and just wanted to be alone and, I guess, digest the news. There's maybe one other person in the world who understands what Cyprian was feeling in this moment. More about that after the break.
there was one American in space on September 11, 2001. His name was Frank Culbertson Jr. Frank was just finishing his first month on the ISS when the Twin Towers came down. And when he looked out the window that morning, he could see it. He could actually see the smoke pouring out of Manhattan, this terrible ribbon of smoke that stretched for miles into the sky. In a letter he wrote to NASA, he said, the feeling that I should be there with all of you, dealing with this, helping in some way, is overwhelming. But he couldn't be there, and he couldn't help. And when humans are on Mars, they won't even be able to look out and see a plume of smoke. Earth won't be looming beneath them, big and beautiful and familiar. It'll be a minuscule dot in the sky, just like Mars is to you now. And if something goes wrong on Earth, no matter how awful, they won't be able to turn around and go home. Cyprian isn't really on Mars. After the attacks in Paris, he could have turned around and gone home. We would have considered pretty much any request from him. That's Kim Binstead. She's in charge of high seas. Um, including, of course, being pulled from the mission. Um, but he didn't, he didn't ask. After hours of waiting and worrying and waiting and pedaling furiously to nowhere, Cyprian finally got word that his friends and family were safe. He never broke the simulation. He says he never really even considered it. He wanted to stay in the dome, to stay with his crew. Good morning. This is Angie Stewart, the chief engineering officer of the High Seas 4 mission. So Lynn's question for today concerns news, uh, specifically the uh, terror attacks that happened in France. After Paris, I emailed the crew. I asked what they were thinking, what they were feeling. And Anjay sent back a long response. First, he offered his condolences. And then he started talking about another mission he'd been on months earlier. It was a much shorter space simulation. It was a two-week mission at Johnson Space Center, the Human Exploration Research Analog, or HERA. On that simulation, the crew was given a newspaper every morning. And on mission day one, I'd read the newspaper. But on mission day two, I opened the newspaper and started looking through the headlines on the front page. And you had... Subjects, one of them was about a murder trial. Another one was about increasing military tensions in part of the world. Um, things like that, things that are rather depressing. So on mission day two, I looked through that front page of the newspaper, saw those and thought to myself, you know, I don't want to read about these things. These are depressing. and. But I can essentially hide myself away from these by not reading them. And so on mission day two, I put the uh, newspaper articles away and didn't read them for the rest of the mission. At the time, he didn't mention this decision to his crewmates. But... It turned out at the end of the mission during debrief that everybody had done that around mission day two or so, just stopped reading the newspaper for similar reasons. So let's fast forward to high seas now. On the High Seas mission, Anjay planned to do the same thing. He's been mostly avoiding the news. And a lot of the other crew members have, too. But the Paris attacks were something they couldn't avoid. And again, it's depressing. And again, my thoughts go out to the uh, people affected by those attacks. It's weird to read about, though. Again, it's 
it's nice being in an isolated dome and being able to usually filter out the bad things. We don't have war here in high seas. We don't have death. We don't have crime. Things like that are kind of this foreign concept to us here. It's a little hard to describe until you've actually felt it. And then again, you'll hear about something. It's like, wow, people are mean to each other sometimes. Why are we like this? Yes, sometimes life in the habitat is boring and repetitive. Sometimes it's almost unbearably boring and repetitive and the days start to blur together. But it just takes one day like this, one headline, to make fake space look a lot better than real Earth. After that American astronaut, Frank Culbertson, watched the World Trade Center collapse, he wrote a bunch of letters to NASA. And in those letters, he actually talked about Earth a lot less than you might expect. Instead, Culbertson wrote a lot about his Russian crewmates, about how kind they were to him in those strange, dark days. Michael, he wrote, even fixed me my favorite borscht soup for dinner. Vladimir taught me the Russian word for condolences. Out there, you only have each other. And the same is true in the habitat. And instead of spending their time peering out, at all the insane things happening on Earth. This crew seems to be devoting more and more time to their friendships with each other. And on the next episode of The Habitat, some of those friendships start to seem like more than just friendships. It could be something as simple as just kind of two people meet and they kind of click and they hit it off and they become a cute little couple and that's fine and doesn't get in the way. Or as complicated as everyone just passing each other around over the course of the whole mission and getting unbelievably complicated and and just activating parts of the brain that NASA had not anticipated uh, training them for. That's next time on The Habitat. is a production of Gimlet Media. It's produced by Peter Bresnan, Megan Tan, and me. I'm Lynn Levy. Our editors are Alex Bloomberg, Jorge Just, Caitlin Kenny, and Blythe Terrell. Music, sound design, and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Boll. Our credit music in this episode is performed by Reps. They are very good. And written, of course, by David Bowie. Our fact-checker is Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Jasmine Romero for sorting through hours and hours and hours of boring astronaut tape to find the very most boring astronaut tape. And a very special thanks to the High Seas crew. Anjay, Christiana, Cyprian, Carmel, Shay, and Tristan. <laughs>